today we'll be continuing our series, Old Fashioned Postures for a Brave New World. And um, today's, the topic of today's preaching is the fight. So it's, uh, it's about fighting today. Um, uh, before we start, I'll just pray, Holy Spirit, I just pray that you speak through me today and let it be your words that come forth, not my words. And let your words go forth and minister life and bring hope and peace. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, well, the fights, really, what's, what's that about? What, what, what are we fighting, really? Um, it's, over the course of this series, I think one thing we've noticed is there's definitely that sense of action words being used, the chase, the fight, fleeing. It's that sense of something that we have to do. Um, it's, not, it's, not, it's not a passive thing. So Christianity is not passive. It's not something that just happens. It's something that we have to take action. And um, there's a, the verse we are speaking on today is 1 Timothy 6.12, which says, fight the good fight of faith. Um, in 1984, Neil Postman wrote a hugely influential book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he argued that we live in an age of ease and amusements, and we've actually forgotten that much of life is about battling through. Battling through. Now, Paul's, Paul reminds Timothy in this letter that some battles are worth fighting, and definitely the Christian race is, the Christian race is one of them. But what kind of fight are we fighting? It's a fight for our faith, for the gospel. It's not a fight against flesh and blood. It's against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, as Ephesians 6.12 says. That means there is, there's, something, there's an action going on there. There's intentionality. There's practicality. We put the gospel in front of us, and we make sure that it, we don't lose focus, that things around us to the left or to the right don't distract us but that we stay focused on the gospel. Um, there's a quote I really like by Lisa Terkos. It says, How dangerous it is when our souls are gasping for God, but we are too distracted, too busy distracted, flirting with the world to notice. And I think that that's quite um, profound because it's that sense of, well, what is holding our attention? What are we fighting for? What are we holding on to? And, and why, really? Well, the thing is, we live in a world that tends to be at odds with what we believe. So there is that sense of friction, sense of fighting to follow one direction while being lulled or even pulled towards a different direction. In Romans 7, Paul talks about the struggle he has between serving the law of God and the law of sin. And in verse 19, he says, "For the, I don't do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do, that is what I keep on doing. Uh, it, it can feel a bit like demoralizing, really, like this thing is it's constant. But I think the fact that we have a struggle is actually evidence that the Holy Spirit is motivating us to resist. The world has no struggle. They just indulge. I mean, why not do what we want to do? Who is stopping us, you know? There is no sense of, you know, this is what God wants. But we have a fight because the Spirit of God is working in us. And he's, he's encouraging us, he's enabling us to resist, even though we still feel pulled, even though we still may be tempted. But we have that spirit actually, you know, strengthening us and enabling us to, to, to fight against it. And I think it's also important to know that we are fighting from a place of victory because of Jesus' finished work on the cross. 
So it's not, it's not, we are not fighting a battle that we are not sure whether we've won or lost. We have won. However, we are still fighting against the relentless devil. In a sense, it's a bit like, I don't know, some of the popular court cases that we may have um, heard about on the news, where maybe the highest court in the land has granted the defendant victory, and yet the plaintiff, plaintiff would not accept that judgment. So they still keep trying to fight in other ways, you know, mudslinging, false accusations, even though victory has already been declared. And I think that's, that's the case with us as Christians. We have that victory. So while it might be quite annoying that, you know, we have this devil still trying to, you know, throw accusations at us, we can at least fight from that place of confidence that we have the victory in Christ. And, but again, it's still, um, it's still important to know that the devil does not give up. He's quite persistent. There's this old joke I heard a while back that um, illustrates that. And apologies if you've heard it before, but I just yeah, feel that it, kind of, it fits. Um, there was a new pastor that was struggling to make ends meet on his first salary. And then he found a, dress, a receipt for a dress that his wife had bought for about $250. And he was very angry. He was like, how could you do this? How could you spend this amount of money on a dress knowing that we are struggling? And she said, well, I was outside. I was looking, I was looking into the store and I saw this dress and it was just like it was beckoning me to at least try it on. And then I found myself trying it on. And it was like Satan was whispering in my ear, you look fabulous in that dress, just buy it, buy it. Well, the pastor said, you know how I deal with that kind of temptation and you know how Jesus dealt with it. You say, get thee behind me, Satan. And his wife said, well, I did. And he told me it looks even better from behind. <laughs> so it's that thing, really. The devil does not give up, you know. And it's just, yeah. I mean, it's embarrassing how much I can relate to that joke. But let's, let's leave that. Um, the thing is, if the devil keeps fighting us, then that means we need to keep fighting too. We need to be conscious that we are soldiers. And as 2 Timothy 2.4 says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. The enemy wants to trick us into thinking that it's peacetime and, oh, what's the fuss about? But in reality, it is wartime. And like good soldiers, we need to guard our lives against the enemy's schemes. So we, again, it's that whole thing about focus, you know, not, not flirting with the world. During, during um, the war, like we have today, you know, soldiers, they, have, they know that they have a battle and they don't go around, you know, doing silly things. That's their focus, to win that war. But how can we fight this good fight? I mean, how do we do it? And I think like any other fighter, we train. And this slogan I once saw says, it says, train hard, fight easy. Or maybe not easy, but at least easier. And I mean, we've been watching the Commonwealth Games and um, taking place at the moment, and we see these sports. And what, what fascinates me really is that in some cases, that moment, that moment of performance can literally be for a minute. In fact, if, if you think of the 100-meter races, you're thinking less than 10 seconds. That's what they are, you know, that's their moments. And if you know the hours of training that they put in for that 10-second moment, and you think, it almost seems like it's almost disproportional. But, but that's how it is with, um, with our fights. The thing is, the, the, the moments we have, those intense moments when we really feel like we're in battle against the devil, it's, um, it's, not, it's not then that we start training. We, must, we should have started training long before that. So that, that's, I think that's the key thing. Again, with the games, it's not, it's not today or it's not just last week maybe that some of the athletes and some of the other sportsmen and women started training. This training must have been taking place, taking place years before. 
And um, I guess I, I came across this series, this sermon series called Spiritual Symmetry, and from a church called Door of Hope. By um, um, the series was by Tim Mackey of the Bible Project. I don't know if you've heard of it, and Josh White, and I found it really inciting and um, helpful. And I would recommend that if you if you can listen to it, you you do so. It explores biblical and historic spiritual practices that mark the life of a maturing follower of Jesus. And in preparing for this sermon, I, for this sermon, it really struck me that actually those practices are a great way to train for this fight. Because these are practices that Jesus and the disciples themselves carried out. And when you think about it, Jesus fought the good fight to perfection. And he's now seated at the right hand of God, as Hebrews 12 says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And the other thing I like about this series is that it explores what almost seems like contradictory practices, but a key point is the need for balance. Now, I, I can't go through the whole series in this sermon, um, but I would just like to highlight a few practices and, and maybe focus on a few of them. Um, and there, there, are, well, there are 10, but jumped into five. They're serving and being served, feasting and fasting, giving and receiving, work and rest, and praying and acting, and solitude and community. Now, serving and being served, there are two elements of that. There is serving God and serving each other. Um, Romans 12.1 says, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And Mark 10 says, the Son of Man came to serve. So there's that element of serving God, but as D.L. Moody says, the problem with a living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. So it's a daily battle. We need to come every day to say, Lord, I'm going to serve you today. It's not a one-off thing. It's, it's constant. The other thing is, um, when, when Jesus, before Jesus um, died, one of the things he, he said to his disciples in John 13, 14, was that we should wash each other's feet. And there's that sense of, um, you know, supporting each other, serving each other. But again, it's about balance. There are two parts. There's serving, so it's good to serve, but it's also being served. And there's, there's an element of, I guess, humility in being served. I think sometimes some of us, we find it hard to you know, ask for help, to, to be served by others, because we are so used to being the ones who serve. And I think there's that element of actually, as a family of God, we should not just, you know, we should serve, but we should also be willing to be served by others. And then there's feasting and fasting. Um, you know, the, the Bible says in Luke 7, 33 and 34, for, the son, for John the Baptist came neither eating bread or drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a gluten and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So we see, and obviously, Jesus' first miracle was at the marriage of Cana. So we definitely see that Jesus was somebody that was, you know, feasted, really. And the whole point of, of celebration, of feasting, is that sense of being aware of God's goodness. Being aware of, this is, this is what God has done in our life. So God is happy with us to, to feast, you know. But again, there's fasting. So it's not an either or, should I feast or should I fast? It depends on, you know what's happening in life at that point in time. When the um, Pharisees told Jesus, well, why are you not fasting? He said, um, well, this, the, the bridegroom is here. Are we going to fast now? We rejoice now and then later on we fast. 
But, but the interesting thing about fasting is that Jesus also expected us to fast. It wasn't a question of, oh, a, a suggestion. It was a practice that he really expected. Because when you read the Bible in Matthew 6, 16, he said, but when you fast. So it wasn't a, if you fast. He actually expected us to fast. And in that fasting, there are so many Bible verses that talk about how we fast. You know, not making it... Um, not doing it in such a way that everybody can see, but actually using that time to spend, to re really spend time with God and also, you know, giving to others. So there's a, there's a fast that pleases God and there's one that doesn't. And I think I will encourage us to, you know, read up on this. But this is definitely a practice that can really help us because the thing about fasting is that it helps us to bring our body under subjection. So it's not, okay, it's not my body that is leading me. It's not my body saying, I'm hungry, go and eat now. It's a way of telling your body, actually, you're not in charge. You know, my spirit is in charge, and right now I want to spend this time focusing on God. So I'm not going to feed into my desire to eat or whatever, you know, you're fasting from. I'm going to instead use this time to worship God, both practically, you know, and spending time with Him. And then there's also... Giving and receiving. Luke 6, it says, give and you will receive. Your gift will, be return, will return to you in full. Press down, shaking together to make room for more. Running over and pouring into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. Again, it's that sense of you know, giving as a form of worship. So we give our time, we give our resources, we give to, to those we see around us and um, to God. And we also receive, we receive from others, because like I mentioned earlier about serving and being served, is that two-way thing, there has to be a balance. It's not just only giving, but also being, be, being willing to receive from others as well. Um, work and rest is another one. Um, th this, is, this is quite an interesting one. I was, I was listening to it um, recently, and it talks about, it's not just a case of oh, working Monday to Friday and then resting, uh, but it was very interesting focus on what Sabbath actually means. And that sense of was um, when God, you know, rested on the seventh day, was it a case that he was tired of creating the world? But actually it wasn't that. It wasn't that he was tired. It was after he had created man that he rested. And that Sabbath is that sense of fellowshipping with God. And we can fellowship with God during, you know, while we work. The Bible says that there are so many Bible verses that talk about walking, you know. And because it's important that we have that purpose. But it's also not just, it's not just working for the sake of it, but it's work as a form of worship. Um, we, we derive value from God, not from our work. And it is because of that value that we derive from God that we are able to worship him through our work. So work is a form of practical worship. It's, you know, doing what God wants in our workplace, serving God in our workplace, in whatever we do. And Martin Luther said, the Christian shoemaker does his duty not by putting little crosses on shoes, but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. And there are different ways our work can honor God. When we think about what God does and how we can serve God, um, I was listening to a, a series on this and it talked about how, the various ways that we work, and in some ways, um, bringing order, bringing joy, making things more beautiful, making provision, releasing potential, or creating a context in where, where people can flourish. And these are various things that you know Jesus did while on earth, and we can also do in our workplace, and do it as unto God. So it's that whole sense of self, not just Monday to Friday, um, you know, this sense of... Um, 
um, secularism, and then when we come to church on Sunday, then it's a different thing. No, it's, it's that full sense of work, working as unto God, but also being able to rest, and that's like getting refreshed in his presence, spending time with God, and really communing with him during our rest. Um, the, the thing, the, as somebody once said, the Sabbath is a never-ending presence of a God who cares about you. Praying and acting. Now, when we, when we talk about prayer, I guess the best example of Jesus um, talking about prayer is the Lord's Prayer. And again, this is another one when Jesus expects us to pray. He says in Matthew 6, 6, but when you pray. So there's that sense of we are expected to do it. And if you look at some of the practices of the Jews, they, they had this almost... There was almost a ritual of, you know, praying in the morning when you read some of the sounds of David and it says in the morning when I rise in the evening, there was that sense of, you know, having that consistent time to pray. And while it may look like um, maybe one, a ritual that we don't need to, you know, what we don't need to do anymore, actually it can be quite helpful to have that sense of, you know, in the morning starting your day with God, in the afternoon recentering yourself in God again, and then in the evening, you know, just reflecting on the day and, you know, Again, spending time with God. Um, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, 9 to 13 is, is the best example of this sense of praying and acting. Um, when Jesus, um, when the disciples ask, how should we pray? And Jesus says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, there's that sense when you read the, the Lord's Prayer, there's no my, actually. It's very much an ah. There's a collective thing there that we as a church, we ask for our daily bread. And when I was listening to the series, one of the things that Tim said that really struck me says, when you pray the Lord's Prayer and you say, give us today our daily bread, if you already have your daily bread or your monthly bread, even your yearly bread, if you have enough resources for that, when you pray that prayer, there's that sense of thinking, well, who do I know that does not have the daily bread? Who can I be an answer to prayer for? And that's where the prayer and acting comes together. That's where there's that sense of, while it may seem, some people say, oh, you know, spend time praying, we don't do any action. Actually, there should be that sense of both. And we, we get that from, from the Lord's prayer. The other thing is, um, so it's not just um, me, me, me. It's a sense of not just what God can do for us, but what we should do for us, for others. And there's also the line that says, lead us not into temptation. And, and how do we avoid temptation? It's um, 2 Corinthians 10, 5 says, we take every thought captive. In the New Living Translation, it says, we capture rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. And, and it's, it's quite, if you almost think of that um, figuratively, it's like, I remember reading this in a book somewhere. It says, when a thought comes, how do we respond? Do we host the thought, you know, offer it a cup of tea and some biscuits and let it go on and on until we've, you know, we believe whatever that thought, you know, it develops into something more and we believe it? Or do we measure it against the word of God and send it packing straight away if it doesn't stack up? So if, if something, you know, we're going through a challenging period in our lives and um, a thought comes and says, oh, God doesn't love you, you know, that's why this is happening. 
Well, we, we, we measure that against the word of God, and we think, actually, is this what the word of God says? No. The word of God says, you know, God loves us. He's always with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. I like the line in, there's a song, it's song, This Is How I Fight My Battles. It says, it may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. And it's that sense of knowing, actually, you know, this thing that is happening is working a work in me, whether it's patience, it's enabling me to see God. And it's not, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. And that's how we kind of try and deal with some of these thoughts that come to us. Um, and the last one is solitude and community. Again, it's that sense of, um, it almost seems like two opposite things, but both of them are, are equally important. When we read about the life of Jesus, we see that he spent a lot of time, you know, just with the Father. He would go away just by himself. A classic example was just after his baptism and before he chose his disciples in Matthew 4, 1 to 11. He, you know, went to the desert for 40 days and there was nobody else. It was just him. And he spent that time with his father to recharge, refresh us, refresh himself in God's presence. And that's something we can do. It's about, intima it's about intimacy with God. It's about focus, saying no to everything else, saying yes to God, self-denial, freedom from the perceptions of others. And the thing is, the, the more time we spend with someone, the more we, we tend to become like them in their mannerisms and all that. So it's about that sense of spending time with, with God and, um, and being recharged. And, and I know it can be really hard when you know, there's so much going on. I think, I guess, my best example of doing this was one Saturday while I was doing housework. And I just, you know, it's about, well, what do you do when you spend time with God? And I just, there was this particular song I, I started listening to, and I had it on repeat. And it's probably like one or two lines. But I must have had it on repeat for hours that day. And even though I was doing housework and all, I really felt a sense of God's presence. So that by the time, by the end of that day, I felt like, a hundred demons couldn't have convinced me that God wasn't, you know, Yahweh in my life, even though at that point in time I was facing a few challenges. And I think it's unfortunately, I, I wish I could say I do this a lot, but sadly I don't. And I can't even give a reasonable answer as to why I don't, but, but then it is part of the fight, I think. And, and then there's community as well. We have our church community and our wider community. So our neighborhood, our workplace. And God really uh, you know, encourages us to spend time to bless others and be blessed, to encourage one another. And this is why community is so important. We also need people who can be honest with us and who we can be honest with because accountability is so key in these fights. You know, Psalm 141 verse 5 says, Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. And I'm just really um, encouraged by the examples of healing on the streets, going out, and, and other, other things we do as a church to kind of serve our community. Because it's, it's breaking that culture of individualism where we think that we are the most important people other than part of a whole body of Christ. We are called to love one another, to go out and show what the kingdom of God looks like. And we can't do this in solitude. While we get that recharge from solitude, our lives must intersect with others. Philippians 2, 4 says, don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. So one of the, um, even as part of a community, one of the greatest gifts we can give our pastors and church leaders is our prayers and gratitude. We, we can be thankful for their work and bless them with our prayers because we are in a battle and they are at the forefront. And we should make it a point to consistently encourage and build up those who are building us up as well. There is limited armor for the back during a war because 
We are strongest when we are with our battalion, our family of believers. And, and I, I've just, yeah, so those are really the, the five or 10 practices, depending on how you kind of define them. And I think it, while it may seem really hard, but it's the thing about these practices is that it's the devotion that drives the discipline. We have to be persistent and it's a daily fight. The practices won't feel natural in one day. If we think of the athletes, the example I gave earlier, um, I remember when, uh, or you know, just any, anything that we have to do, there, there has to be that consistent you know, practice of that thing. As um, Ralph Waldo Emerson notes that without action, thoughts will never ripen into truth. Um, I remember once when I was studying for a qualification, and when I started the, the qualification, when I started studying, it was around winter, and I had to wake up really early, like ridiculous o'clock to study before the kids woke up. And I remember how hard it was those early days, just you know, fighting sleep, but knowing that if I didn't study, I wasn't going to pass my exams. And it was, it was uh, I had to write about 14 exams over the course of two years. And the thing with practice is that as you keep doing it, your body gets used to those things, and, um, those practices. And I remember the day I finished my last exam, it was a Friday, and I remember thinking, thank God I don't have to wake up early again. And I was just like, yeah, I'm going to sleep and you know, have a line. And by three o'clock, my eyes popped open, like I couldn't go back to sleep. I was so pissed. I was like, sleep, 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 you don't have any exam. No, I couldn't. It took quite a while, actually, before, me, before I could get out of that you know, habit of waking up so early to study. And I think that's how it is with these practices. When, when we start them, they feel a bit alien. But as we keep doing them, we are able to really build them to our life so much so that we do it almost without thinking. Um, and again, the other, the, other, the other aspect of it is how, how putting it into our daily lives. I remember my, my kids had watched um, the Riverside Performing Arts performance of Elma. And it, it's, a, it's a very interesting play. And it, kind of the theme of it was about not rushing, but taking time to, I guess, enjoy the world. And one morning, it was, um, we were getting ready. And school run can always be quite a challenge. Let's put it that way. And we were getting ready, and I was like, hurry up, put on your shoes, put on your this. And then my youngest son started singing, time, 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 we don't need to rush. And that is from, <laughs> that is from the play. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> but actually, when I thought about it, I realized that, you know, he was right. Yeah, I, I thought, you know, I'd listened to this, um, I'd watched this play, and then I was going about my business, not letting it actually impact me. But he, he remembered it. Granted, it was the worst possible time, but, but at least he, he did remember it. And then, so it was, yeah, it's just that thing about, I guess, really allowing ourselves not just hear something and walk away, but, you know, putting it into, a, putting it into practice. And the other thing I guess I would like to emphasize is that we are fighting from a place of victory from a place, from a position of power, with the help and power of the Holy Spirit. We are not doing it on our own. We have the Holy Spirit working in us, and we have our family of believers. And I was asking a friend, well, I'm speaking on this, what, is there any, any, do you have any thoughts on this? And he said something to remember is when you fight, sometimes you endure punches and bruises. And I think it's, it's important to remember that God loves us. He hasn't left us to fight alone. And when we fall, we can ask for mercy. But we shouldn't beat ourselves up, because as Richard Heap says, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. And I just want to round this up with, um, a, I, guess, I guess, my own experience of, in a sense, failing at you know, fighting. 
And there's this um, quote by St. Augustine, and he says, But my sin was this, that I looked for pleasure, beauty, and truth, not in him, but in myself and his other creatures. And the search led me instead to pain, confusion, and error. And in my case, I guess there was something that I felt God wanted me to give up. Um, because it was taking a lot of time that, you know, I could have used to better serve him and do other things I felt he wanted me to do. And I had this sense, well, I was, so in a sense for me, it was like that fight of, you know, prioritizing God. And I, you know, I, I wish I could say, oh, I breezed through it, and, but actually I didn't, you know. I, you know, I, in a sense, I failed. And I remember last Sunday, just, um, or rather last weekend, you know, just having this sense of feeling really rubbish that I was supposed to be speaking on fighting, and I, I was not successful, you know, doing my own fight. But two things happened that weekend. One was that I, I watched a movie. It's, um, it's, a, it's based on a book called Redeeming Love by Francine Rivers, and the, the movie came out recently. And it's just really about the story of Hosea, where, um, if you haven't read it, it's... Um, his, his God calls him to marry a prostitute, and she keeps going back to her prostitution, and God keeps telling him to go back and fetch her. And it's that sense of, you know, being that symbol of God's love for us, and we keep going back to our sin, and yet he keeps coming back to fetch us. And there's a particular scene in the movie where um, she, wants, she wants to run back to prostitution again, and... He drives up to her because he has gone to fetch her before, and he, he drives up and meets her. There's about a 20-mile journey between the house where he has taken her to and you know where she does her where she was you know carrying out prostitution, and she's gone, she was, she's walked for about a mile by this time, and he catches up with her on his horse, and comes down and. Um, She's running away, and she's so angry that he's followed her, and she slaps him and says, "You don't own me." And actually, he, he didn't, you know, try and drag her back. He just gave her a flask of water and said, you're going to get thirsty. He gives her a coat and says, it's going to get cold later on. And, um, you know, and then he, he says, you know what, this way, one mile this way is home, and 19 miles this way is paradise. And that paradise is the name of the place where she was working as a prostitute. And he says, it's your choice, you know, you make that choice. And, well, she... Um, so he drives off, and or he rides off. He rides off rather on his horse, and she's sitting. She's standing there, and um, well, the film shows about a couple of hours later, she comes home to him. So she makes the choice to actually go back to him, and um, she walks in, and she's so tired and hungry, and I think she's expecting him to almost, you know, mock her for coming back after running away. But actually, he just gives her some food. And when she finishes eating, he starts washing her feet, which are dusty and bruised. And she's just, you know, so touched. And she asks, why are you doing this? And he says, because sometimes one mile can be harder to, work, to walk than 19. And there's that sense of sometimes when we've started our battle and we feel like, oh, forget this, you know. I'm never going to do this. Actually, we, can, we should never feel, because that's, that's the devil lying to us, saying there's no point, you won't be successful, just forget it. We should always remember that God is willing to take us back, and even when we make mistakes, he's there for us. And I think the second thing that happened that weekend um, was on Sunday when I came to church, 
And um, the, the, during the song worship, the song they sang was that all, that, all the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. And it just kept, kept ringing in my ear, my ear all weekend and the day after. And it was just a sense of God reminding me that, look, you might, you might feel like you failed in this, but actually I love you and you can always start again. Uh, and really that's where I'd like to end in that, that we are loved by God and we are not fighting on our own, but we are fighting from a place of victory.